Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to On the Ball with Rick Buecher. Here's your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buecher. Rick Buecher. Welcome to the first episode of On the Ball with me, Rick Buecher, on the United WeCast Network. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me by ordering the memoir of Brian Grant and his battle with young onset Parkinson's called Rebound. Pre-ordered copies are available now on Amazon. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places, but there's only one place you can hear me talking about story angles and perspectives that you are not likely to find anywhere else, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA, and that is here. Thank you for joining me on the updated iteration of Buecher and Friends, the name of my previous podcast. Not much has changed, other than the name and the cover. I'll still be bringing on guests from time to time, and still diving into aspects of the NBA that I don't see or hear being discussed by other outlets. Those topics in this episode are why I can't completely buy into the Brooklyn Nets coming out of the East, and how Damian Lillard unintentionally made Kyrie Irving look foolish. Not just by his epic performance in leading the Blazers to a miraculous win over the Pelicans, but in his comments afterward. And finally, the one player that if the Clippers are serious about winning a championship, and I like to believe that they are, the one player that they have to trade, they have to move, regardless of what ultimately they get back in return. But let's start with the Nets. Look, I get why everyone is jumping on the Nets bandwagon. And I should say right off the top, are they a great team? Yes. Are they one of the best teams in the league? No question. But uh, as I record this, they've won 14 of 15 games, and that's without Kevin Durant, who is sure to rejoin them at some point before the playoffs roll around. And while there are certain stars that I could make a case will require some time to be reintegrated into their teams and have them operating at peak capability. I don't put Durant or the Nets in that category. It won't be that difficult to integrate him back into what they're doing. At the same time, this idea that they are world beaters and just imagine Kevin Durant is going to take them to another level, well, it's not that easy. It works that way in fantasy, but we're not dealing with fantasy here. We're dealing with reality. And again, I look at the game in a certain way. I look at what happens during the regular season, and it's not so much whether they win or lose. It's not 
simply how they perform in the final minutes of a game or any of that. It's a matter of taking what I see in the regular season and then applying what I know is the case in the playoffs. And how does what they do in the regular season, how does that fit with what they are going to face in the playoffs? Again, if we were just talking about are they going to be one of the best teams in the league, then there would be no point in this scrutiny. But the belief is, for those that are on the bandwagon, is that this team is without a shadow of a doubt coming out of the East and potentially winning it all. And they could very well do all of that. But there's reason for hesitation. There's reason to look at it and say, maybe they're not everything as a playoff team that they certainly are as a regular season team. Now, there are two reasons I question whether the Nets are going to dominate the Eastern playoff picture. And the first is what I saw when they played the New York Knicks the other night. Now, since then, they added a win over the Pacers. They did it with only James Harden as their star, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant both out. And they out-executed Indiana down the stretch without question. Had to come back, but once they did, it's the final four or five minutes. It's the execution at the end of games that I focus on the most. Because ultimately, most playoff games come down to that. And if you are going to win a championship, then you have to be able to execute in the final minutes. Now, we know without question, offensively, they should be able to get things done at the end of games. Should be. It's defense, again, that I'm worried about. And to a certain degree, offense as well. But we'll get to that. Now, when it comes to the Knicks game, first of all, Tom Thibodeau is demonstrating once again that he's a pretty damn good coach. And that's never been the issue. It's his difficulty communicating with people in charge and not wearing out his players with his constant displays of dissatisfaction. That that those are the reasons he ultimately got bounced in both Chicago and Minnesota. Although that latter one about simply having that stink face all the time, I believe that's part of coaching. It takes a certain discipline to understand the impact that you have on players. I'm not saying that he didn't have reason to be dissatisfied with what he was seeing at various times in Minnesota and Chicago. It's simply you can't always wear that on your sleeve. Players are in the midst of a game. They look over, and every time they look over, they see you disgruntled, unhappy. At some point, it wears thin. They stop playing for you, and they're playing with you. And if it gets really bad, there are cases where they even play against you. That doesn't behoove any coach. And yet, Tibbs, for whatever reason, could not control his own anger, resentment, dissatisfaction, and it affected the team. Ultimately, as a coach, your job is to get the most out of your players. That's, that's the be-all and the end-all, however you do it. Sometimes it requires a different approach. As of right now, I think the masks are doing Tibbs a huge favor because I'm not sure that he's changed his behavior a whole lot, but you can't really see what that expression is for the most part. He doesn't have very expressive eyes. So the fact that they're not seeing that grumpy look on his mug is working to his benefit and certainly helps the Knicks are a team hungry 
to win and have some sort of success, and they're certainly having that. But let's be honest. This is still a starter skit, uh, excuse me, a starter kit of a squad right now for the Knicks. I would not be surprised if, for example, Julius Randle is a one-and-done all-star. I dare say he got this year's nod because of the respect the other coaches hold for Tibbs. A coach can't vote for his own player, but he can stump for him among the others, and that happens routinely leading up to the all-star selection of the reserves which are selected by the coaches, for those who may not know. I'd bet Zach Levine got the same boost from Billy Donovan taking over in Chicago. As Zach has said, and I would attest, he pretty much played this way last year. Not a whole lot of difference, other than the team itself is having a little more success. But Billy Donovan taking over in Chicago for Jim Boylan, even if he did make a case for Zach as an all-star last year, Jim that is, which I'm not completely convinced he did, it wouldn't have the same sway as Billy coming in, having coached in Oklahoma City for as long as he did, and for him to say, hey, you got it wrong on Zach. He's the real deal. He's a hard worker. He's a team leader. Those were the questions. Nobody questioned the numbers with Zach. It was a matter of, was he about the right things? Coaches, to a certain extent, still utilize their selection of all-stars, the reserves, as a carrot and reward guys that they collectively feel play the right way. Now, Randall couldn't have got that boost last year with the Knicks firing David Fisdell, 22 games into the season, and substitute teacher and career-long assistant Mike Miller finishing it out, no matter what kind of season Randall might have had. And face it, let's face it, the Knicks were just not good enough at all collectively to merit having an all-star. I'm not sure there's another all-star talent on that roster either. R.J. Barrett looks like he should be in the league for a while, and he's a decent player, but I don't know what his strength is. He's listed as a two-guard. I know sometimes he handles it. Two guards and point guards are pretty much interchangeable these days. He's solid in everything, but he's not dominant in any one thing. And as a two guard in today's game, even for a team that is as defensive oriented as Tibbs, averaging 17, 18 points as a two guard is simply not going to get you there. There's a reason Tibbs was adamant about getting Derrick Rose from Detroit and why the Knicks were seven and three with him when he first arrived and are now two and five without him over this last stretch. RJ simply doesn't move the needle like that. And yet, the Nets struggled to put the Knicks away simply because they couldn't handle their physicality and refusal to roll over in the final minutes. They weren't intimidated by Kyrie. They weren't intimidated by James. Twice the Nets got tied up for jump balls. Twice in the last 10 seconds. Now, if the Knicks had a bona fide go-to score, they could have pulled this win out the way the Blazers did against the Pelicans riding Damian Lillard. But they were left to Randall, attempting a three-pointer to tie it. And while he is shooting over 40% from distance and he has improved in that tremendously, he has a really slow release. And it was slow enough in this case that Irving could get a hand on the ball as he went up. As an aside... What I found extraordinary 
is that Randall didn't know he couldn't come down with the ball just because Irving touched it. Everyone I've ever known who has played knows that if you go up with the ball and the defender gets a hand on it, you have to act as if he knocked it free from your grasp or you have to force a shot up. You can't just come down with it because the defender touched it. I suppose he was arguing or certainly people suggested that it should have been a jump ball. Irving didn't control it for that long. He put his hand on it and came off it. Wasn't certainly wasn't long enough to be a jump ball. Bottom line is, Randall came down with it without Irving touching it. And you can, if if the defender knocks the ball, or you can pretend that the defender knocked the ball out of your hands, then you can grab it, but you can't dribble it again. It's not like loss of possession. So that's what Randall did. He went up. Irving touched it. He couldn't get the shot off. He came down, tried to act like he was going, realized he couldn't dribble. He was about to take a dribble. And it was ultimately called for a travel. You can look it up in the rule book. I saw some people were citing, that's not the way the rule is written. That is the way the rule is written. If you leave your feet and you come back down holding the ball, it's a travel. It doesn't say anything about a defender touching it, not touching it. If you go up with it in your possession, then you need to get rid of it unless somebody knocks it away from you. Anyway, his outrage at Scott Foster was completely misplaced. Even more extraordinary is that Damian Lillard questioned on Twitter why it was a travel call, suggesting that he didn't know the rule either, which just shocks me. Again, Maybe watching it, Damien, Damien thought it should have been a jump ball. Uh, I, I saw it in real time, didn't think it was a jump ball. Saw it in replay, didn't think it was a jump ball. It was a travel. Again, the point is, the Knicks are not a very talented team. They're in, a hunt, they're in the hunt for a playoff spot because they play gritty defense and they've had the second easiest schedule in the league so far. And I realize that not every top team takes every team significantly below their level seriously, the way the Knicks are below the Nets. They often play down to the competition or measure exactly how much they have to put into getting a win. And as long as they measure correctly, it doesn't matter how close it is. I mean, we can talk about it and suggest things, but Lakers have been doing this all season long. I accept all of that. Uh, They've been playing... Close games that they have no business considering the competition, making them close. But last three, four minutes, they get down to business. Five and six, last I checked, five and six, when they're trailing by five uh, in the last five minutes of a game, and they're 13 and four when they're up by five in the last five minutes, five, five, five points or more. So... You can compare that, for example, to the Clippers. We will be getting to them. And they are 8-6 and six when they lead by 5, going into the final 5 minutes. And they're 2-11 and 11 when they are trailing by 5. The other out the Lakers have, of course, is that they've already proved what they're capable of. They are still number one in defensive efficiency. Their offense has been off. I credit some of that to AD. 
I also credit it simply because they've been sleepwalking through the first three quarters and then ratchet up when need be. They've demonstrated to me that offensively, when they need to be on their game at the end of games, they're still capable of it. But in any event, they're the defending champs and they still have their nucleus. And so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. I can't say any of that for the Nets. They don't have a proven track record. Individually, yes. And even individually, it's not to the point where I say, I know what they're capable of defensively and offensively. What I do know is that when the postseason rolls around and teams are allowed to be a little more physical, as the Knicks were, Harden has traditionally struggled. And I see that potential for the Nets in general. Both Joe Harris and Harden got tied up for jump balls down the stretch. Now, it may not sound like a big deal, but look, you're closing the game. Letting somebody get in there, get their hands on the ball, not foul you, not force a foul, but simply allow them to wrap you up is an indication that you're not very physical. Harden's very physical driving to the hoop. He has mastered that without question. In other aspects of the game, whether it's defending or even protecting the ball in certain situations, not so much. Harden, Irving, and Harris didn't show any resistance on defense down the stretch unless they were fouling. And I would assume that those three guys are going to be on the floor at the end of games. I don't expect them to suddenly be able to get physically tough when they're isolated on defense, nor do I see KD's return somehow changing that. I also know that when Kyrie is asked to blend his ability to score with his ability to make plays for others, he struggles making the right decision. Kyrie is so good at getting a defender off balance that all he usually needs is enough time and eventually he's either getting to the cup or he's pulling up for an open mid-range or he's rising up for a three. Those are all good. However, he is six foot two, maybe three, and it is possible to put a defender on him that can make him work for those shots. And then with the really good teams, they will send a second defender at the right time that's going to force him to make another decision. And that's where he gets in trouble. He almost always gets a decent look at the basket. But sometimes he has to work so hard for it that he doesn't have quite, it's not an easy shot at the end. Even if it may be open, it's not easy. And the concentration necessary to put all those moves on a defender and gauge how he reacts and the instance the airspace is there for a shot limits Kyrie's ability to know exactly what is going on elsewhere on the floor, to know if someone else is open. His passes generally come before he's made any moves or after he's stuck. Giannis Antetokounmpo, by the way, has the same issue. He has to think so much when he's double teamed that it makes it hard for him to see the floor, to see all of his options, what his personal options are, and then what his passing options are. Make the game simple for him, a one-on-one -on -one game. 
And generally, he's going to get something good. He's a handful. He's tough. But if you put him in a situation where he's got to operate below the free throw line and has to either score or create a shot, teams are going to time it so they double team him when it makes the decisions most difficult. And because he's working so hard at getting to the right place and keeping his footwork and his balance and all that right, he doesn't have time to focus on timing when the double team comes and beating it or knowing where those options are. It, it's not an, it, look, it's not an easy skill, but any championship team has to have a guy who's capable of operating that way. Kyrie is not that guy. KD, KD certainly can be that guy. James Harden can certainly be that guy. Is Kyrie willing to give the ball up and to play that role? Well, through the course of the regular season, we have not seen that consistently. And it raises the question, does Steve Nash have the authority? Are KD and James willing to have the tough stand with Kyrie to say, dude, this ain't your time. This is not your role. And if they are willing, how is Kyrie going to take that? We've seen him sulk before. We've seen him go off the reservation. We've seen him not comfortable when he's being told what to do and he doesn't necessarily like it. He is sensitive. So, that's one of those things that has to be determined. And if you take him out of the equation, are James Harden and KD good enough to get you there? Again, there's still the question of the defense. Offensively, yes. No question. Defensively, I still need to see it. In any event, we saw all of what I've just been talking about play out against the Knicks. And to be clear... I'm enjoying the hell out of watching Kyrie and Harden play this season. Kyrie's ability to break somebody down and his timing on layups to wrong foot it or recognize the little space to get it up and off the glass and to put just the right English on it is sensational. James is playing like a, a true point guard in terms of setting people up and getting people involved and at the same time, getting his when need be. It's as good as I've seen him play, certainly when it comes to filling those two roles. They're both demonstrating, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they are elite players. And it should be quite a show when KD gets back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But there are certain elements that I've seen undermine really talented teams in the postseason that prevents them from being all we expect them to be based on what they did in the regular season. I put the Jazz in that same camp, largely because 
they're one in seven in games in which they trail by five or more in the last five minutes of a game. Now, what that tells me is that when they have to make stops at the end of a game, score, get a stop, score, get a stop. They're not very good at that. They're good when they're ahead, when they can play with a little bit of a cushion. They're not going to let you come back on them. But the ability to come back at crunch time, to get the necessary stops and make the necessary tough baskets is vital for any team interested in winning a championship. No matter how good you are, no matter what your regular season record is, no matter how much firepower you have, there are going to be playoff games where you are going to be playing from behind in the final two, three, four minutes. Maybe the last 30 seconds. Can you get that stop? Can your defense be so solid that you do not allow a quality shot? And then can you get it? go get it at the other end? Pretty confident the Nets, when need be, can get it at the other end. But can they get a stop when they absolutely need one? And again, we're talking about against the best of the best. That's what I still need to see. As much as we remember what Kevin Durant did matched up against LeBron James when he was with the Warriors, it was all really at the offensive end, right? Do we remember any signature moments when KD stopped LeBron? Well, if they're going to win a championship, and then they end up facing the Lakers in the finals, which they very well could be, who's guarding LeBron? Who's stopping LeBron? And I'm not even expecting LeBron to shoot and score because he often gives that up, but he usually beats his man well enough that it is human nature, instinctual, that a second defender is going to come over. And the second he does, he's kicking it to somebody to knock down that shot. And so that's my question. When you're playing, even if it's Kawhi Leonard, who's guarding Kawhi Leonard? Who's guarding Paul George? I'm not going to go to Giannis Antetokounmpo, but... You have to tell me who the defensive stopper is for the Brooklyn Nets. That guy who's going to defend the other team's best player and make the game hard for him without necessitating a double team. I Again, um, I see the Jazz as being a team that is hard to stop if it gets an early lead, but that isn't going to win games if it comes down to playing from behind and having to win the ISO game at both ends of the floor. Donovan Mitchell is too streaky on offense, and Bogdanovich is too vulnerable on defense, especially if Gobert is not Rudy Gobert is not on the floor, which he often is not at the end of games, especially if they're trailing because he's simply too much of a liability in pick and roll involving a big who can take and make an open three. And I assure you that Jazz get to the conference finals, which is where everybody expects them to be. They're going to meet a pick and pop four or five if they haven't already. Now, this might sound like I'm nitpicking, but the truth is the Nets know what I'm talking about. Look, you have to have a team that's capable of playing any style or answering any question that the opponent might pose or that any opponent is capable of posing. It's why they went and got Blake Griffin. 
yes, they have Jeff Green. Yes, he can stretch the floor. Yes, he's played five. But do you want Jeff Green having a steady diet of having to defend bigger players in the post? No. Blake Griffin has the strength to do that and can step outside and knock down a three. And Jeff Green has had his physical issues, as has Blake. So it's looking for an insurance policy. Miami Heat are doing the same thing. Trevor Ariza, adding Trevor Ariza, uh, looking to get LaMarcus Aldridge. If you're playing for a championship, you can't look at what your strengths are. You have to look at what your weaknesses are. And do you have a way for compensating for them? Because any quality team that you play is going to go right to those weaknesses. And you certainly don't want to have your championship run upended because you ran up against that one team that could take advantage of your weakness. They may not have everything that you have, but they were so primed to exploit your one weakness that that tilted the scales. From a selfish standpoint, I'd love to see the Nets in the finals. Star power is always exciting. And the way that Kyrie and Harden and KD can play and the storylines and drama, I just can't think of a team in the Eastern Conference that would be more fun to watch in as many seven-game series as we can get. I'm all for that. But I'm also a realist, and I've been covering this league for more than 25 years. If you ask me in who would I bank on when it comes to winning a championship, one of the best defensive teams in the league or one of the best offensive teams in the league? I'm going to go with the defensive team, like the Philadelphia 76ers, who are second only to the Lakers when it comes to defense. Now, their offense, not what the Brooklyn Nets have, certainly. But they're not, they're not shabby, and they are improving. The big question, obviously, is who is their go-to guy? The Nets have multiple guys that you could hand the ball to and ask them to go get a, a bucket with the game on the line. Who does that for the 76ers? I'm still not completely sold on the idea that you can do that with Joel Embiid. He is the toughest cover. He is fearless. He would be that guy. But there's certain instances when there's six seconds left. Do you have enough time? Can you run a play where you can get the ball into Joel's hands? Because he's not going to come off of a down screen and catch the inbound pass. More often than not, he simply can't move well enough in order to get it. And he's moving the, the wrong direction. It's just... Trust me, next time you see an inbounds play run for a big will be the first time with a game on the line. If I'm missing an instance of that, please tell me. And don't give me the Anthony Davis three. One, there was more time. Two, he was running off the ball and wasn't the first option. And yes, they ended up getting a shot for him. He ended up knocking it down, ended up winning the game. That's the exception, not the rule, and it's not what I'm talking about in this instance, where it's we get the ball into that guy, he's going to set up, and he's going to attack. Bigs just need more time to be able to do that to get to their sweet spot. Anthony Davis is also a little bit of a unicorn in terms of his athleticism 
for a big. Certainly Joel Embiid doesn't have that same mobility. But everything else about the Sixers, I really, I really like. And for those of you who are the process people, who have bagged on me constantly because I suggested that this, the process has not demonstrated that it has worked. Uh, it's, it's going to be an incomplete because Sam Hinkie never had the opportunity to rebuild the team. He tore it down. He got the picks. But if you look at why the Sixers are vying for a championship this year, it's a whole bunch of pieces that had nothing to do with the process. Nothing to do with the process. And at the top of the list is Tobias Harris. Because to me, and based on what I've seen, they look to him to be that go-to guy. Now, I've seen plays this year. I've always been skeptical about his ability to fill that role. What I like is he's not afraid to take the shot. And most important, once he senses that there's a second defender coming, he does a pretty good job of finding the right guy, finding the open guy. Not only the open guy, but the guy who can make the shot that he's open to take. Jimmy Butler is a perfect example of a player who, for a long time, people respected his work ethic, his ability to defend, his toughness, but you would have never thought that he could be the go-to guy to lead a team to the finals. Not that level. And yet he found a way. He didn't necessarily create a lot of shots for anybody else, but he made the most of what he was capable of doing. And ultimately it worked for the Heat. Now I understand it's the bubble, unique situation, etc. Jimmy's just the first guy that comes to mind for me of guys that we or me... Uh, I looked at and said, okay, he's good, but he's not that. He's not a closer. He's not a championship closer. I don't know if Tobias Harris is a championship closer, but where once upon a time I would have said he's not definitively, he's not. He doesn't have that mindset. He doesn't have that skill set. I'm now willing to wait and see. There's... There's a possibility that Tobias could, could surprise us. And if he surprises us, then the Sixers are a whole different animal and have everything they need, at least to get to the finals. So those are the reasons why I'm enjoying the Nets. I'm not buying the Nets just yet. One other thing I wanted to touch on, again, Kyrie, Damian Lillard, for all those, had the 50-point game against the Pelicans. That was impressive enough, the way that he brought them back. First time ever that a team is trailed by 17 with, what, less than six minutes left and ended up winning the game. But it was what he talked about afterward. Talked about being a guy that was overlooked, why he worked so hard, what his devotion to his family and his friends, his, his principles. And it was inspiring. And it was heartfelt. And it was genuine. And people identified with it. And there was a spirit there that no matter who you are, no matter what you do, you could identify with it. You could connect with Damien. He touched you. He wasn't trying to sound worldly. He wasn't trying to sound enlightened. 
he wasn't trying to sound as if he had it all figured out. He was just speaking his truth. And I feel as if that's what Kyrie is trying to do, but doesn't know how to do it because it's not genuine. Now, I attribute some of this, having gone through maybe a similar metamorphosis, in that it's because Damien has a family and is raising kids. And that just has a profound effect. Well, it had a profound effect on me. And to my knowledge, Kyrie doesn't have that in his life. It's still very much about him, as it was with me prior to getting married and doing all that. So I can, I can relate to it. And maybe that's what's somewhat painful for me, is because I had my own time searching for that, searching for a way to become whole, complete, to believe in something that gave me a purpose greater than myself. My family and my kids certainly gave that to me. And so I don't come here to criticize Kyrie, but I know that for me, I needed people to call me on my bull in order for me to evolve, in order for me to stop thinking that I might be fooling somebody. And that's why I have a problem with my media friends who buy into Kyrie's or they applaud him or they defend him in the things that he says because you're co-signing something that is bull and I want to see Kyrie evolve because he has a lot I think to offer I don't I think he's genuinely anybody who's searching anybody seeking anybody who desires to be the person that Kyrie seems to want to be that's a good thing. It's just we don't all come equipped or prepared to be that. We have to go through our learning process. Part of that learning process is to get called out, is to say, that ain't it. So that's why I have the stand that I have. All right, last thing I want to get into, the Los Angeles Clippers, who continue to go on their merry way, looking at times like a team that could win it all that they have all the necessary ingredients. And then just as quickly giving us performances that suggest they just don't want it badly enough. They're just not focused enough to be able to get the job done. And I felt this way since the bubble that the Clippers had to make a move with one particular player in order to send a message to everyone else and to set the record straight about what they're after and what they will and will not accept. And that is they, for the love of God, have to move Lou Williams. It's not just the whole lemon pepper fiasco in the bubble. That was enough. That was enough. The idea that you bring him back after that it's not in any way on the level of Myers Leonard with the Miami Heat, who I would expect we're not going to see play in the league again. But when a player demonstrates that he's not about what you profess to be about, 
then you have to cut them loose. No matter what the price might be, no matter how talented that player might be. Lou Williams is a pretty talented scorer. He's a very inconsistent, improvisational player. And that does not work in the postseason. He's, he's the kind of player we often say is just good enough to get you fired if you're a coach. Because he can put up numbers and he can look spectacular at times. But when you need him the most, you never know what you're going to get. And this latest game with the Dallas Mavericks, perfect example. Two for 10, 24 minutes, had no other impact on the game. Defensively, is not there, is still incredibly lazy at times, has not taken anything from last season and said, I got something to prove. I really screwed us up. We had a chance to win a ring, and I really screwed it up in the bubble. That was a selfish thing that I did. If I saw a transformed Lou Williams, he's never going to be a great defender. If he was making the effort, I might look at him different. But he's the same old sweet Lou. And you simply can't live with the way that he plays. Because if he's not scoring, then he's not contributing. And the way he scores, which again, is improvisational. You never quite know where he's going to be shooting it from. Often shoes, we talk about degree of difficulty. He takes more off-balance shots than anybody I've ever seen makes more off-balance shots than I've ever seen. But when it comes to the playoffs, the additional energy, your fundamentals have to be solid. Your shooting has to be on point. And his simply isn't. And because it's improvisational, nobody knows exactly where they need to be. So it's very difficult for them to play. He got into a rhythm last year during the regular season with Montrez Harrell. Those two worked as a tandem, and it worked well. Largely because Montrez is everything that Lou Williams is not. Montrez being out of shape, missing a good part of the lead-up in the bubble to the playoffs, completely undermined Lou. And yet when you have him there, can you? I, I understand the reluctance not to play him, especially if you need buckets. Let's throw him out there, see if he can get us something. But the cost is simply too high for a team that wants to do what the Clippers want to do, which is win it all. You can't afford that. You can't afford the guaranteed off stretches that Lou Williams is going to give you. Because if he's not making shots, as I said, it's not as if he's going to turn around and go, well, you know what, I'm going to give it to you at the defensive end. I'm going to, I'm going to buckle down. That I've never seen happen. The bigger pr problem is the message that you're sending the rest of your team. If you're accepting of that, if you make allowances for Lou, then it opens the door for everyone else to think that they have allowances too. Again, you can be a really good team. You can win a lot of games. You're never going to win a championship with a player like that. So until the Clippers move Lou Williams, if and when they move Lou Williams, I'm not banking on them winning a title. All right, that does it for this episode of On the Ball with me, Rick Buecher. By the way, don't forget, please check out my primary sponsor for this podcast, Mizzen 
and Maine, M-I-Z-Z-E-N and Maine, M-A-I-N. It's men's fashion. If you've seen me on TV, you've seen me wearing their shirts and probably their blazer. You know the workout gear that you wear, the dry fit? You know how comfortable that feels, how nice it feels, how nicely it uh, fits your body, no matter how you're built? That's what Mizzen and Maine has done with their dress shirts and with the same effect. Don't have to worry about sweat marks. Uh, don't have to worry about taking them to the dry cleaners. Can't tell you during the pandemic what a great discovery that was. I can just throw them in the wash, cold wash, put them all together, hang them. Don't even have to iron them. It's, it is, and they look like any of the best dress shirts that I've ever had, and they fit great. I absolutely love wearing them, and they have an array of styles. Mizzen and Maine, M-I-Z-Z-E-N and Maine, M-A-I-N. Tell them that my podcast sent you their direction, and I'm sure that they will give you a discount of some kind, or maybe even some free gear. Who knows? Give it a try. All right, that does it for this episode. Again, I'm supposed to tell you in the next episode what is coming up. I'll be honest. I don't know. Maybe a guest. Maybe another conversation about some element of a team that I could see getting it done or somebody that you can cross off your list. Could have to go back to the MVP conversation. That seems to be heating up as muddled as it appears to be. In any event, don't forget to also rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It means a great deal to me, to the show, and our sponsors. All right, that does it. As always, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.